Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, it's me, Cupid. I know you're trying to think of what the best way is to woo that special someone in your life on Valentine's Day. And how about the two of you just sit down and have a nice relaxing evening bonding while you listen to an episode of this podcast. Before we continue my first ever journey through the Harry Potter series, just a few quick announcements. First, I am happy to announce that that Potterless Discord Trivia Night is coming back this February. Our quiz master Kevin is ready to go with another wonderful quiz. If you don't know what this is, once a month or so on Discord, we do a trivia night where people are broken into different teams of a few people, and there are 20 questions. Everyone competes. The questions are harder than your everyday Harry Potter quiz, so you get a fun challenge there. You get to meet some new friends, and you get to compete against me, because I am my own team by myself, and I usually do quite poorly, though sometimes I do all right. To be a part of this, all you need to do is join our Discord. It's available to all $2 and above patrons over at patreon.com slash Potterless, and you can check out all of the channels there, and you'll see news about when the trivia night is happening and how to join and all of that. It's a very fun time. I love it, and I'm excited that it's coming back this month. And just a reminder that since this episode of Potterless covers some material that J.K. Rowling had a hand in, I will be donating a portion of the ad sales to a trans charity, and that trans charity is True Colors United. You can learn more about them at truecolorsunited.org. And speaking of charity, in the intro of next week's episode, I will have more information about the upcoming Potterless Charity Raffle. It's going to be a good time. We're going to raise money for some good causes, and there are some really solid prizes that you could win. So stay tuned in the intro of next week's episode. And of course, want to thank the newest members of our team over at patreon.com slash Potterless for keeping the show going. So shout out to Sarah Kridanoff, Myrie McKinstry, Leah Shuvens, Tate, Oivor, Johan, Angel Holt, Cheyenne Perminsky, and Nathan McDonald. Donald. And a huge shout out to our newest producer level patron, Hunter Fincham. They join the ranks of Vicky, Christine, Aaron, Clown, Marchismo, Juan, Rosemary, Maria, Lisa, Audra, Eleanor, Nikita, Rachel, Zachary, Alex, John, Noel, Claire, Rory, Veronica, Lada, Noah, Tracy, Colleen, Jennifer, Justin, Jacob, Maya, Mark, Polly, Zena, Hardlin, Noelia, Nikki, Kine, Amanda, Kafir, Sarah, Marta, Maya, Flor, Georgia, Skyla, Adele, Professor, Threat, Ellie, Michael, Kelly, Carrie, Connie, Jen, Nedry, Will, Marcos, Marik, Ashton, Brittany, Phelan, The Meadows Family, Ginny, Heather, Kevin, Jarl, Peter, Jan, and Callahan, Leah, Bella, Melanie, Becca, Rees, Adam, Joseph, Matt, Madison Tonks, Sabrina, Sophia, Farzan, Melanie, Matt, Okamahime, Boney Pony, Kelsey, Ricky, Taylor, Megan, Riley, Laurel, Erica, Miranda, Kendra, Natanya, Yogan, Darcy, Sandra, Craig, Leor, Demi, Michelle, Henrique, Casey, Megan, Sat, Jack, Sophia, Dane, Robin, Chick, Mermaid, Daddykins, Gregory, Kawkaw, Nina, Ribbon, Brittany, Gavin, Jack, Serenity, Emily, Haley, Sabrina, Jenna, Laura, Gila, Eileen, Annette, Kirsten, Hufflepuff, Brett, Mary, Artemis, Trans People or People, Samantha, Nina, Tatiana, Taylor, Karis, Vomit Spiders, Tony, Joe, Punkfish, Wire Warrior, Catherine, Joe, Steamed Nuggets, and Can't I Potter? Who never have an apple with a bad spot on it and then they think, oh, I'll just eat all around the bad spot. And then a couple bites later, you realize you've eaten the bad spot and you've swallowed it and now you just have to live with it. If you want to be like one of these amazing patrons and get access to bonus episodes, the Discord, which gets you access to the trivia night, monthly live streams and more, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Potterless. But without further ado, let's get into episode 163 of Potterless, our second of three episodes covering the first Fantastic Beasts and where to find the movie, guest starring Michael Harley.
Hello, Internet, and welcome back to another episode of Potterless, the tale of a grown man who never read the Harry Potter series as a kid. He read them as an adult. He watched the Fantastic Beasts movie when it came out because people said no spoilers, and there weren't too many, but now he watched it again. What a joy. My name is Mike Schuber. I'm that grown man, and we're here to discuss the second half of that first movie, and I'm joined by a Potter-related friend I've met from the Internet and podcasting world. It's Michael Harley. Michael, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. Good. Uh, I do know that that's not the true answer that you wanted to give because when we started the call and I asked how were you, we had a lengthy discussion about how that is a whole new question now. <laughs> but we got that out of the way before recording. <laughs> so now all of that's done and I'm at a place where I am good, which I think is the highest level that you can be at at this day and age. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's that's where you can be. Like if you're at a point where you feel okay enough to lie that the answer to that question is good, you're in a good place. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to be talking about the second half of this movie. Now, you were on Harry Potter podcasts. You are still involved in the Potter world, mainly trying to help people on Twitter come to grips with how to deal with the fandom. Generally, what are your thoughts on this movie when it came out, where it lives now? All all, where do you stand on Fantastic Beasts? OK, so first before like I'll get into that, let me tell you about let me let me give you a little bit of who I am, because that definitely informs what my feelings are on this film. Okay. I think it's important, especially because your listeners probably have absolutely no idea who I am. And I don't blame them. Bless their hearts. Um, so <laughs> I am part of the original Potter generation. I have been a fan since I was nine years old. So that's over 20 years. I was that Potter fan. Like, I was the opposite of you, sir. I was, <laughs> I was in it to win it. As many people will attest, I threw the most amazing homemade Harry Potter parties of all time. Thanks oh, to my parents' incredible. assistance. <laughs> and I have, like, I consider myself to have seen as much as a Potter fan with a limited budget can see. I went to Midnight Premieres. I went to Universal Studios a million times. Fantastic Beasts, Cursed Child, Pottermore, the Wonder Book games, the video games, LeakyCon, GeekCon, like everything. Mm -hmm. And then I and on top of that, I was podcasting, as you mentioned, for 10 years. I'm recently retired, but I was on Audio Fictions, Alohomora, and Speak Beastie. Those were all with MuggleNet.com. And then I left just very recently. I uh, have an undergrad in film from the University of New Mexico. I am currently studying for my master's in library sciences at Texas Women's University. And I've been in libraries for 20 years. So Potter was pretty much lined up with my library journey. I prefer to evaluate the series through a very critical and diverse lens. I identify as BIPOC. I am East Indian. I'm adopted. I am queer. I identify as gay. I am Jewish, non-practicing like Daniel Radcliffe. Oh, <laughs> um, And I have a brother who has um, low-functioning autism, who is somebody that I bonded with, with Harry Potter over Charlie and I, my brother. I read Harry Potter aloud to him. So with all of that mixed in, you can probably imagine that rolling, opening her mouth in 2020, and then moving those words to Twitter, just absolutely just was crushing. Not necessarily for me, like, per, like I'm not, I'm, I'm not trans, I'm not non-binary, but I am a part of the queer community. And for me, it was more just this feeling of, if I feel terrible hearing this stuff, reading this stuff, I can't imagine what a trans fan is going through right now or a non-binary fan. Like, that's a terrible, what a terrible thing, this world that we have all loved to retreat to, that we have committed so hard to, um, that pretty much all of us from the Potter generation thought was going to be a, like a lifelong investment. 
and suddenly in our 20s, 30s, 40s is like, <laughs> no, like really abruptly. But where Fantastic Beasts comes into that, I think, is looking back on it more so than when I was in the moment. It's one of the pieces that simultaneously with Rowling's downfall, I think, is a reflection of the franchise's slip. Do you think just from a quality perspective or because of like underlying themes in the movie? Like when you're you're saying downfall, is it just because it's like not as good or is it something bigger? Oh, yeah. It is not the quality that it that the Potter books are. It's not even close to the quality of the Potter movies. When I first saw it, I was riding off of the Potter high. Like, I had read Cursed Child, but I hadn't seen it. So I was like, that was just a mistake. And it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't written by Rowling. So I was like, hey, let's put that one to the side. Was, justify, justify, justify. <laughs> let's, let's see what Fantastic Beasts has. Fantastic Beasts did the, that thing where it, it definitely intentionally tries to trick your brain and is like, oh my God, I'm so good, right? Like, I remind you of all these things from Harry Potter. And like, I'm just going to drop like surnames and like spells and beasts. And like, you've read it and (laughs) it's all for you. And I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. And then every subsequent viewing, I was just like, this is just incomprehensible film that is very reflective of a writer who does not know how to screenwrite. Yeah, I think the biggest thing I've noticed on rewatching is not necessarily just the problems with plot or story, but just from a movie viewing experience, this movie cuts back and forth so much that it is just not fun to watch. No. There's like 12 different storylines happening and we get to see like each of them 45 seconds at a time, it feels like. Yes. And it's just so frantic. I was going to ask you about that since we do come from such different buildups with our Potter experience. Because I, I grew up with the weight. I grew up with the anticipation. I grew up with the theorizing. So I was curious for somebody who was like basically spending time with on your podcast with friends who were like, oh, I know it, but I can't tell you. But like the information's <laughs> out there. And then it wasn't probably too much of a surprise for some of those things that maybe were to to like, you know, a teen. <laughs> 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 like what what was it like then to go into Fantastic Beasts for you? I can't remember exactly where I was in the books when I saw it. I feel like I had finished book three. I was somewhere in the book three to five range when I saw the movie. So... I remember not thinking it was that great, but internally I thought maybe it's just because I'm not obsessed with the series yet or I don't know everything. Maybe I would appreciate this more if I've seen it all. And then I didn't watch it again until I was doing the prep for these episodes. And yeah, it's just like it's just not that exciting. And it has some really fun parts. But, uh, like, if it was just a cute movie about just beasts, that would have been fantastic. But all of the, like, dark, brooding, credence stuff is just uninteresting yeah you kind of hit on it for me too it's a joyless film it's funny that we're examining the particular section because that i think that applies mostly to the second half of the movie and there are two different halves it's almost like how in my opinion (laughs) deathly hallows part one and deathly hallows part two are completely different movies you wouldn't know that they were filmed at the same time agreed it's the same thing where like part one is just like this good like entertaining setup like it's this you're you're kind of just like okay well i'm this in here i i'm going in with the expectation that this is gonna do something great and then the second half is like oh what what (laughs) yeah (laughs) so like it just and it just keeps stacking on and i mean it's really hard. I, I'm going to really try and practice during this chat to not integrate too much 
of Crimes of Grindelwald into my feelings about this because that has <laughs> yeah. so retroactively affected that further. Oh, 100%. And I don't think that's unfair because it's the sequel. And it has, Crimes of Grindelwald has important stuff that Fantastic Beasts was setting up. Like, I'm also trying to kind of look at it, just looking at this of, as when I didn't know where it was going, was there still anything interesting here? Yeah, I mean, you can give a setup movie more of a pass if the sequel actually is good. Like, is the first Batman, Batman Begins, is that really that good of a movie? Like, I'm sure it's not incredible. It was enjoyable. But I think what makes it, looking back, people enjoy more is that Dark Knight was incredible. And then Dark Knight Rises was really solid, too. Not as good. But I think people look back more fondly on Batman Begins because they know what is to come. And it becomes like, oh, yeah, they did the setup. That's pretty cool. Whereas the reverse for this, like, when you get a reveal of... Colin Farrell turning into Johnny Depp, you're like, oh no, <laughs> what, <laughs> See, what did that, they do? <laughs> I think that's an excellent example because I actually feel the opposite way. I actually really like Batman Begins better than Dark Knight. And I'm one of oh, those, okay. yeah, I'm one of those right. weirdos, but I think that's actually a good tag to put on here is that's important always for me with these discussions too, um, because people would like, whenever I expressed a contrary wise opinion and which I knew I was doing on Alohomora or Speak Beastie, people would like pile me on Twitter and in the comments and just be like, what is wrong with you? And I'm just like, no, 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 no. Like I let, like I am fine for those of you who are out there who love Fantastic Beasts. And you're like, this is my man. This is my jam. This is what I wanted. Great. Like, this is not what I wanted in the end. Everybody's going to be wanting something a little different. And I think there are Potter fans who came away from Fantastic Beasts being like, yep, that's what I wanted. I wanted a convoluted story with lots of new characters that like have their own backstories that are teased so that I can get more information about the wizarding world from my perspective. And something that I think a lot of critics pointed out was it was almost like Rowling misunderstood what people were saying after Hallows ended and they wanted more. We were saying like, can you tell us like what happened to like, Dean Thomas or Seamus Finnegan or like characters we cared about. And she was like, no, I have that information, but no. <laughs> and proceeded to tell us about a bunch of characters we didn't know. She's using that same formula, just not in the way that I think people were expecting post Potter. Yeah. It's weird that the movie does not depend on things that the Potter fans understand and know about the world which would build a better plot and mystery. It just makes up rules as it goes. Yeah, you just get a room full of goop that kills people. Uh, so let's get into the movie so we yeah, can talk yeah, about these yeah, specifically. Great. It's so great. It's a great movie. <laughs> so where we left off, we have the older Shaw, so John Voight's kid. He, the older brother is at some sort of political rally, and it has a big portrait of his face, and then it says America's future. And that just in a 2020-2021 viewing is just way too real when <laughs> the racist character in a position of political power is called America's future. That is just a little on the nose. Mm -hmm. the, the Shaws are just such nothing characters. They're terribly set up because they are very much black and white in how they are presented, which is not something I think we are used to in Potter, even with supporting characters. But the Shaws are meant to play a point in the plot. They have a part to play. So in a normal Potter narrative, they would be doing more than they do. They would not be presented as, like Henry Shaw would just not be presented as just this disgusting politician who has no 
sympathetic value or trait. Like he would, he would have gray layers, but we don't have time for that, especially because he's a muggle <laughs> and he can't do anything interesting. I mean, I, I, that's the other thing that I think is so hilarious about this setup that just, and I'm, I, I have to cite my sources on this one. Um, highly recommend uh, to your listeners if they haven't watched YouTuber Jenny Nicholson's reviews on both the first and second movie. She's okay. she does it more for humor, but I mean she she gets to such fantastic truths about these films, and one of them is about the reality that like initially she was like, "Oh, Muggles are the villains." That's interesting. We've never really had like a full like other than the Dursleys. There's never been like a like a Muggle villain who's like the center of the plot. And then she's like, oh, that's because they can't do anything to wizards. They pose absolutely no threat to them whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the Shaws. And then, then he dies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He's just over the top and he's very tropey. And then he dies. So he's apparently the Senator of New York, which I, that felt like it kind of came out of nowhere, but he's the Senator of New York. And the only thing that we hear from his speech is that he has banished saloons. So just like another notch on the I'm a bad person and you shouldn't like me belt is that I've now prohibition is because of me too. And then basically he's doing the speech and Obscurus Credence comes in and destroys the whole rally and kills Shaw. And this is just another movie trope and also New York trope. I don't think I'm ever going to go, if I'm ever invited to like big banquet in a nice fancy place where someone gives a speech at some point I am not going because in every movie especially movie set in New York something bad happens at these events oh yeah I'm, I never want to go to like big fancy gala if someone's like oh we rented out Grand Central Station and so and so is going to give a big speech I'll be like I'll catch you later I'm not going I, <laughs> I mean, know what happens I can't speak to that as well because I've never been in a city like lived in a city like New York but part of me is like, but I might see Spider-Man, so I might go. <laughs> like, if the that chance is the to be rescued thing. by Spider-Man <laughs> happens, it's very <laughs> tempting. <laughs> so, after Shaw dies, we cut to Tina showing up at the Makusa meeting where all of the world leaders are there. So it feels like Makusa became the UN. It's not clear what kind of meeting this is, but she just waltzes in. With Newt's briefcase, again, no security in Makusa. Tina can just show up, and then the president's like, oh, you better have a good reason for ruining this meeting. It's like, you better have a good reason for not closing the door. Like, what is this? <laughs> this seems to be open forum. Like, anybody yes! can come in and give their opinion. This is now on that, you. I think this scene is supposed to, like, again, if this were a more thoroughly concocted Potter plot, This is like those Ministry of Magic hearing scenes we get in the original story that are supposed to supposedly introduce some characters that might be important even farther down the line. Because Rowling has that tendency in her writing to put in characters that may not be important in that moment or even in that story. She may just be referenced. But when she writes a book later, she can pick up a name and then act like, oh, I knew this for 20 years. Yes. Nagini's a Korean woman. (laughs) was a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that's crimes of Grindelwald. But the thing that really gets me, and this is the first in this half of the film that is an example of something that comes up a lot for me with Fantastic Beasts and with the last Harry Potter films is, oh, Yates. His direction and editing and his 
Okay, so there's a few things. One is his camera style. Like, he loves to keep things out of center frame. I don't know why. The only thing I've been able to guess over the years is that he moved from television to film. He moved from 4x3 to widescreen. And he was like, I like it here. I'm going to put everything on the side. So it's just, (laughs) this is not how film works. You are supposed to keep things center framed. He doesn't do that. And that's very much his style. It's one of the weirdly consistent things he does from Order of the Phoenix onward. So your eye is traveling all over this very very full room of people trying to figure out who is who and why they are important. He's doing these choppy, choppy edits that very much suggest that there was a different movie here. Mm. My favorite is when Tina knocks on the case to get Newt to come out. And she does like this little back and forth dance because it looks like she backed up. But so then she's coming for like, I don't, I just don't understand. There's some incomprehensible edits. And then to top it off, Gemma Chan from Crazy Rich Asians is here. Yes. She has no role. She has she's one, got line. one line, <laughs> no role of substance. She keeps being cut to like she is important. But she is not important to this scene. Well, the problem is that Gemma Chan isn't white. So I don't <laughs> think that you. <laughs> Ooh, girl, are we going to do it? We're going there. I, I will have. We, I'll play you say about that. No, we we discussed that quite a bit with uh, with Lizzie Sudlow in the last episode. But yeah, if, if you're not a white person in this film franchise, <laughs> good oh, luck being important. Rowling doesn't know how to treat characters of color. And she has progressed not at all. The Crimes of Grindelwald's accomplishment was that it included more, but they either die mm-hmm. or are terrible people, or, or they are useless to the plot. They are a yep. they are a red herring. And that happens here. That's also happening in this scene, not only with Gemma Chan, but with um, Serafina Pickery, the most useless <sighs> president of all time. So bad. So, so, so bad. <laughs> so one guy brings up to the president that America is breaking the statute of secrecy. And then she gives, Serafina gives this very weird reply where she says, I won't be lectured by the man who let Grindelwald slip through his fingers, which is just like a strange thing for a person in political power to say. It would just be like if Angela Merkel said something in the UN and someone's like, I'm not talking to the lady who had the Nazis. Like, yeah, it (laughs) happened, but that doesn't mean someone raising a very valid concern doesn't matter. And then also, I don't know if you're going to see what happens in the rest of the movie, Serafina Pickery, but you let Grindelwald slip through your fingers the whole time. He's been there in all of your important meetings. So, like, (laughs) this is ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah, the pot is calling the kettle also a pot. Like, it's ridiculous. Oh, no. Well, and it's hilarious, too, because that's... And and this is another one of those moments with the film's hilarious attempts at ooh I'm 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 playing with my secret here but boy the film plays its cards really hard because it's just it's literally as she's like the man who let Grindelwald slip through his fingers cut to <laughs> cut to Graves being like mm, suspicious <laughs> shifty eyes what I <laughs> Grindelwald <laughs> he sounds like a cool guy looking back. This is something that I didn't know because I don't know if people knew that this was a, a potential plot twist. I didn't know the whole like Grindelwald disguising himself because I really didn't know much about him. But looking back, knowing the reveal, it is so obvious. It is so, so ridiculously obvious. Like the necklace that he gives credence is a Deathly Hallows necklace. And yeah, any single line that hints about Grindelwald, I think is followed 
by uh, Graves making a face. Yes. And when he interrogates Tina, he has some line where it's like ridiculously over the top where Newt is talking about the Obscurus and he says that it can't do anything when it's in this protective sphere. And he's like, oh, so it's useless. It's like, <laughs> it is so heavy handed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this guy's supposed to be like, he's very much framed as being, uh, I think the Potter Phantom has attached to him this feeling that he is smoother than Voldemort. He's a little more of like a, like a, like a kind of a secret agent type compared to Voldemort, who is like loudly and proudly a terrible Nazi. Mm -hmm. This movie does nothing to prove that Grindelwald does nothing smoothly. He's, he's clunky the whole, the whole way. And like you, I did not figure out the twist as I was sitting there, but reflecting on it, I think that was because Rowling's writing had trained me not to think that, obviously. Like, I was sitting there waiting for a grandiose twist. Like, I knew Graves was evil because he's obviously evil, but I thought there was going to be something more complicated revealed about his role in the plot than just yeah. he is Grindelwald. Yeah, I think that was my thought. I think I thought that he was in on it, but not Grindelwald himself. Yes, that's that's where I was going to with it. And I was already hating that because I, I like Colin Farrell, and I was just like, he's just so dang like sweet and likable and mm -hmm. this is not a good role for him like this is he's doing his best with a very bad role and he's poor thing he's also probably thinking he's probably the person in the room who's like uh i'm gonna turn it into johnny depp so i guess i have to emulate that a little bit <laughs> um, <laughs> so but the other thing i'm sure you were probably gonna note too but i couldn't help but mention is that once newt gets out of the case and sees what has happened with shaw the effect is really bad. Oh, it's like really terrible CGI. Yeah. It's incredibly bad. And like a lot of the other CGI in this movie is good, but yeah, it's pretty bad. It was to the point where I didn't know if it was supposed to be not looking like a human. Like it was, it was rough. Yeah. I think that's the other thing that really stands out to me with this film is the Potter films are so lovingly crafted and you see the evolution of effects from one to eight there are, are always just some really amazing movie technical prowess going on, and you can see it. Beasts is the first Potter movie where I don't really see anything that most blockbuster summer movies do. Like, there's nothing that's standing out. But the weird thing is I have the... My father, very sweetly and somewhat misguidedly, got me the Case of Beasts, like, behind-the-scenes book. Oh, uh, okay. And it's amazing to read because it's just another one of those materials that's like, the effort that has gone into this movie is so disconnected from the result. Like, they're still doing that minute level of loving detail and craftsmanship, but it looks like it all got replaced with CGI at the last mm. second. And this seems like one of those things. Like, you could have eased, like, there is a practical way to do what they did in that. Yeah, scene. you could have just filmed that guy laying down on a green screen or a blue screen bench and then superimpose it. Like, it's not that hard. No. I don't get why they had to make him fully CGI. And then he looks like a video game character flying above the, the meeting. It's very strange. <laughs> Once again, that's not any kind of magic that we've 
been taught to recognize. Exactly. I was so confused. I was like, what is this? And also, what does this achieve? Like, what is the purpose of everyone knows the news? Why do you have to show like, here is a CGI rendering of the person that just died? Like, what's the point? Who Like, we know. <laughs> I guess it's like for the audience, like just in case you don't remember from five minutes ago. But the one good thing about this is uh, Serafina Pickery's headdress. Incredible. It's incredible stuff. Her outfit, very on point. That's the one thing that the movie gets away with is it does have pretty excellent costuming. The costume design is fantastic, yeah. Yeah, and I think it got, it was nominated, I think, for an Oscar for the costumes. Well, good. I think it's great. Yeah. Good, good job, movie. <laughs> good job. <laughs> so <laughs> President Pickery is mad that Tina hasn't brought up the new thing earlier now that a man has been killed. She's like, oh, well, why didn't you tell me now about the whole beast guy? And she's like, first off, it's not the beast. But secondly, every single time Tina tried to tell you about something you were like get out of here like <laughs> you never let her uh seraphina pickery is so unlikable we came up with a whole theory and i give credit all to shannon mickelson from speak bc we came up with this whole theory that because seraphina is mentioned on pottermore to be the the one who would not ban alcohol from the wizarding world because <laughs> she felt they had the right to drink we decided and watch the film through this lens you will definitely get something out of it Serafina is drunk. She is drunk ah. the whole time. She is drunk from movie one through movie two. And that definitely explains all of her decisions because there is no ounce of logic here that like even if you're doing if you're trying to connect it logically, you just said like she called out Tina when Tina was trying to tell her this. She, I, I love again, quoting Jenny Nicholson at the end of the movie when, when Serafina just she said she said uh i don't know how we're gonna erase all these muggles memories there's a thousand of them and like 20 of us and i'm tired and <laughs> i guess we'll just die and like, that's <laughs> that's the decision making level she represents throughout the whole film because she can't make larger decisions at the expense of the plot like she could if Rowling knew how to do this right. She could make decisions that would push the plot forward. Um, I think she could still make decisions that are in contrast to what Newt's desires are, but they could make more sense in terms of her. I think the, th the starting point with Serafina is that she is very concerned about the security of the wizarding world. That's a great place to start. And it's well established through Pottermore that that's the kind of personality she is. But she is also portrayed in Pottermore as a very loving person who cares about her community. That portrayal is not does not move over to the film, and it's not Carmen's fault. It's definitely the script. It's not her. Yeah, nah. It's it's just I don't know. It's a, it's very confusing decision making, and honestly, I feel like when I watch the movie, I don't know if this is for sure, but part of me thought she was so incompetent that she was either she was bad. Yeah, like she was so bad at her job that I was like, maybe the president is evil. <laughs> <laughs> she definitely comes off that way. And I mean, with the trend of how Rowling treats her characters of color, that oh, may, have, may have been in the cards at some point. You know, maybe. That may have been in the cards at some point past Michael. Hey, it's me editing, Mike. How's it going, everybody? But you know what's in the cards right now? Taking a break for a little segment that we like to call Wingardium Adridosa.
Today's episode of Potterless is brought to you by Loot Crate. Let's say hypothetically that you are Newt's commander and you are a super fan of Fantastic Beasts. You want to show your love for your nerdy thing with various merchandise of all sorts. Where could you get some incredible stuff to display your nerdiness? You could do so with Loot Crate. Now, Loot Crate might not have exactly Fantastic Beast stuff that Newt's commander is looking for, but if you like something nerdy, Loot Crate has got a box for you. You've got your general Loot Crate things, whether it's Loot Crate, Loot Crate DX, which is like their high quality stuff, or you've got Wizarding World, Marvel, Dead. Deadpool, WWE, Firefly, Crunchyroll, Hello Kitty, Rick and Morty, Gaming, Fallout, Destiny, Elder Scrolls, WizKids, Pixar, Britney Spears, and Gundam. They have so many different crates for you. Whatever nerdy thing you want to get some incredible merchandise from, Loot Crate has got your back. I've gotten some incredible stuff from Loot Crate. I got some really cool X-Men gear. Kelly and I have been using a Jurassic Park backpack that they sent us. There's this really cool just Loot Crate branded pin that we really like. So many incredible items, all from the boxes we got from Loot Crate. Two more nice things about Loot Crate. One, they are run by fans, so the people behind the boxes actually understand the things that they are sending to fellow fans like you, and they have local shipping in a ton of different countries. So if you're an international Potterills listener and you're usually upset by the inability to cash in on all of the deals for these ad reads, check out if Loot Crate delivers to your country because they ship to many places outside of the U.S. And as a Potterills listener, you can either click the link in the description or go to multitude.productions/lootcrate and use the code Potterless for. 15% off your first order. That code is Potterless. You'll get 15% off at LootCrate.com. Again, you can click the link in the description or go to multitude.productions slash LootCrate. So check out that link, use that promo code Potterless, and save 15% off on monthly boxes of nerdy stuff today. And now you'll hear words from a few sponsors who make it feasible for me to be a full-time podcaster. Some of these ads will be read by me, others of them won't. The ones that aren't are inserted locally, so if you live internationally, don't be surprised if you hear an ad in your country's native language. And once those ads are complete, we'll get back to this episode of Potterless. This episode of Potterless is brought to you by Arena Club. Now, if you listen to this podcast, it should be no secret that I am both a sports nerd and more of a traditional nerd. And when you think of these two types of nerddom, there's one thing that links them together, and that is card collecting. Whether you are looking to buy, trade, sell, or display a card collection of sports cards or Pokemon cards, you should check out Arena Club. ArenaClub.com is the place where you can do all of these things. I have recently made a purchase on the marketplace. I got Lieutenant Surge's Raichu, which is my favorite Pokemon, and I didn't even know that there was a Lieutenant Surge version of the Raichu. So that is a card that I now have, and it's not just some digital thing. I can have this card physically mailed to me. So there's a bunch cool stuff you can do with Arena Club, including their slab packs. If you have ever done any sort of card collecting, you know that ripping packs or repacks can be a zero transparency type of thing where you're just hoping you get some sort of cool card. But what's nice about the slab packs with Arena Club is that you have full transparency. You see what available cards are there, what your percentage of getting them is, what the gradings are. So it is not a complete black box. You're going into this knowing what cards you might get. And I've been using Arena Club and it's pretty cool. It's very easy for me to look up different cards. I can favorite them, see what I want, and then whenever I want them shipped to me, I can get them shipped to me, and then I'll have the physical versions of them. Right now, you can right get 10% you can off get, your first purchase right by going to arenaclub.com slash potterclub.com Wow, that is a wild offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack is 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash potterless for 10% off your first purchase. So if you look some cards or rip open some packs in a more transparent way, whether you're a sports nerd or Pokemon nerd or all sorts of nerds like me, you can use Arena Club today. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death 
in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games. So they open up the case in the middle of this meeting. Newt and Jacob come out. And once Jacob comes out of the case, the crowd starts to murmur. And I don't know if this was because they automatically thought he was a nomad, like they could just smell it or something. But I don't know why Jacob gets the murmuring, not so much as Newt. Maybe because they only thought one person was going to come out of the case. I don't know. But once he comes out, someone in the crowd goes, Theseus, Scamander, the war hero? And I was like, are you serious? They reveal that this is his brother, yeah. Theseus is Newt brother but like i know jk rowling tries to get so creative with her names but like to name the war hero brother theseus like does he also have a mathematician brother named einstein scamander <laughs> like are you kidding me we've gone uh, so like, far past the days of introducing a character named remus lupin to 13 year old readers and being like they're not gonna get it and we don't right <laughs> but like now that we are Rolling started like very much popularized, not started, but popularized that trend of using names that have deeper meaning in young adult fiction. And now we have like literally the whole Rick Riordan spinoff, many spinoff series where like you learn all of the Greek gods and goddesses. Like this is now knowledge that everybody has embedded in them. And these things are not at that level of research. That surface level is not clever anymore. It no. is just lazy. Like you're saying. Maybe it's because I took Latin in high school. Maybe it's because I have been playing a lot of Hades, but it feels <laughs> like Theseus is such an obvious pull. Oh, yeah. If you're going to make a war hero brother, it just felt so ridiculously over the top. Yeah, no, it's it's very silly. And the, I love I also love the background person who when when Tina says that Jacob is a nomad, <laughs> some guy in the back is really like lamely like oblivion him. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to try to I'm going to try to pull the audio clip from it. But yeah, there's two things that I <laughs> that I noted is once she reveals he's the nomad, someone goes, no magic. <laughs> and then someone else, you're right, very plainly oblivious, <laughs> like with no emphasis at all. No, it's, it's some gorgeous ADR dialogue. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's amazing. This is Jacob Kowalski, not impressive. He's a nomad who got bitten by one of Mr. Scamander's creatures. No, and the, the, again, it just still continues, and there we'll see more of this. But this scene alone has so many suggestions to me that this film had a lot of last-minute edits that mm. were not part of the plan, and that chopped this scene up in a way where I mean, I'm not saying that this scene made more sense in its original edit, but it definitely had something more to it that is lost from the movie. Yeah, I mean, the w what you are left with in this scene is the only purpose it serves is that more people learn about Newt and then they decide to murder Tina and Newt because of what has happened. Like, that's all you get from the scene is like, uh-oh, now the president and Graves are mad. Cut to Graves deciding that we're going to execute them. It's like all it really achieves. I mean, that's, yeah, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's a, And that's a perfect transition into where we go with Newt <laughs> screaming yeah. about how his beasts are totally harmless. Yeah. It's fine. Mm -hmm. So they ask what beast killed Shaw 
Newt says it's not a beast, it's an Obscurus. Of course, everyone in the room gasps at the same time. Graves takes the case, subdues them without using his wand, of course, and then puts all three of them in a cell. In the cell, we get exposition dump of Jacob being like, what's an Obscurus? And Newt goes, well, in case you haven't read Deathly Hallows, so explains all of that stuff. He says that there's no documented case of one living past 10. He met a girl in Africa who was eight when she died. He tried separating the Obscurus from her. That's that one that's in his case. There's a fun Jacob line where he goes, wait, what you're telling me is that Sean was killed by a kid? (laughs) (laughs) Just the way he asks it. And then once he says, you're telling me Sean was killed by a kid, immediately cut to creepy red herring girl. Like, they tried to make this so, so heavy-handed of a red herring. Like, it was so obvious it was not her because they do so many things like this. The only reason I was even, like, fooled in my first viewing was because the... They actually, yeah, they hyped up the actress, right? Lizzie was talking yeah, about this they, the last they episode. cleverly hyped up like the casting of modesty, and they were like, mm, it's really smart. Modesty is like the part, watch out for modesty. That's never been done before in, in the Potter franchise where they actively followed the casting process as part of the misdirection for the film. It'd be great if when they were asking J.K. Rowling about book four, she's like, There's this character, Ludo Bagman, you're gonna love him. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, yes. It's very much, it would be very, that's exactly the equivalent. Like, it's just, and and, but like you said, because the film just bangs you over the head with a skillet of of like what, of associating her and just being so wildly unclear with what modesty is even, like, I just don't even understand what she's doing in any of her She's just there. (laughs) And then in addition to the movie being really obvious with cuts and stuff like this, like, about 15 minutes into the film, Graves is like, hey, Credence, it's definitely that girl, modesty, for sure. (laughs) And just as someone who watches movies, you know, well, it can't be her then. No. It's not a twist. It's not a reveal. It's nothing. If a character is fully convinced that it's this person, you're just setting up a plot twist that's easy to see Yeah, the film is slapping you in the face with, it's a child, it's a child, it's a child, it's a child. And like, it's that, like, with with being familiar with Rowling's narrative and her style, it's it's not not a child. child. (laughs) Like, that's the key to this mystery is that's the misdirection. It's not a child. Right. So we have this interrogation scene. You've got Graves and then some people who turn out to be executioners and then Tina and Newt on the other side of the table. And Graves just goes, you're an interesting man, Mr. Scamander. And Tina goes, Mr. Graves! <laughs> like, like, it's a rude... I don't. I understand her being upset. I don't know if there was some other line of dialogue cut, but for him to just say, you're an interesting man, and then Tina's like, oh my God! Like, <laughs> My favorite part is the follow-up absurd. where he's... And I, your listeners can't see it, so they'll have to watch it. But his like shush, where he's just like, yeah. like he traces like his whole lips. Like, <laughs> so he's wiped chapstick off yes. of his lips. Basically, it's the most amazing shush. It is an Oscar-worthy <laughs> shush. <laughs> it's like it was like I feel like Colin Farrell did that as like a blooper cut, where he was just like, and then Yates was like. Oh, that's good. Let's let's leave that one yeah, in. <laughs> it's one of those things where they just said, okay, let's get 12 different cuts of you shushing. <laughs> and here on take 12, just like be ridiculous. And Colin Farrell's like, all right, fine. And then he does it. And then, yeah, David Yates. <laughs> that's what I was looking for. I do have to say, you keep doing a British accent for David Yates. And I have established in a, the movie five episode of Potterless, I established that he's actually from Kentucky as a joke. But, every, uh, but once a month, I get a tweet where someone's like, Hey, just got to this episode in Potterless and they said David Yates is from Kentucky. Has anyone told you he's from England? Like, that's the fucking joke. 
He's obviously not from Kentucky. <laughs> and then I got a separate email from people from Kentucky being like, that was really mean to people from Kentucky. <laughs> I never thought a more obvious joke would get me into more heat. <laughs> it's hilarious. David Yates, clearly British man, is from Kentucky. But anyway, Graves reveals that Newt got kicked out of Hogwarts for endangering a wizard with a beast. But then a teacher, obviously set up to be Dumbledore, two lines later revealed to be Dumbledore, vouched for him. And Graves then gets the Obscurus out of the case. Newt explains the separating it from the Sudanese girl. And he says that it can't survive outside the host. And then this is when Graves says, so it's useless without the host. And everyone's like, useless? That's a really weird word choice. So... Graves immediately sentences Newt to death, and then also Tina for aiding and abetting, which feels extreme. We learn as Grindelwald there is a reason of why he's doing this, but like at its core, it's wild to jump to that. And then Graves says, "Do it immediately, and I'll inform the president afterwards." Which also feels like he has—I don't—I don't know if they ever say what his job is or what his position is, but it feels like if he can just be like, "Yo, capital punishment immediately, and I'll fill the president in later," feels like this guy's got too much power. There's definitely like a vague establishing that Graves is like her second in command because he even at the end of the film when they go after Credence. He's like, on my command, do not harm him. Like, it's, it, it, you'll have to answer to me. And this is also part of the problem is that we, as the audience, never meet Graves in his original form. Yeah, so many questions. Like, was he an actual person? Was Grindelwald just disguised as him? How long has this ruse been going on? Like, so many questions at the end. And then, of course, Crimes of Grindelwald does not answer them at all. No, no, absolutely not. But the, the other thing about this, too, that this scene, I think that's a really, like, notable takeaway is that Graves in passing says like, oh, Dumbledore is really interested in you. Why is that? Why is Dumbledore like you? <laughs> this goes under for me the category of questions no one asked. And this is what I was talking about with the, the beginning at the beginning about like rolling misunderstanding what we meant about things we wanted to know after the books were done. And one of those things is, did Dumbledore have favoritism of Newt's commander too? And it's like, no, nobody asked that. Like, there, nobody wondered if these two had a deeper relationship. It's really well spelled out, actually, in the original book that, like, Newt, like, asked Dumbledore as a favor. And Dumbledore, like, was like, well, you were a successful student, so I'm writing you the foreword for your book. That's, like, that's it. And that makes sense. And there is no need for an explanation with that. But here we have the planting of the seed of, like, What's his interest in you? What's his game? What's his end game? And it's like, there is no end game. The Potters don't exist yet. Voldemort doesn't exist. There's no end game. <laughs> and that's something, too, that we will see throughout this section. But Newt is so far removed. That's, this is the other problem with the movie, too. Newt aggressively does not want to be in this movie. Yeah. He actively is trying to get out of this plot. Like, every second. Like, he just does not want to be here. He just wants his beast, and he wants to go to Arizona and send Frank away and then go home. He represents all of us. The viewer is just, we don't want these other plots. We just want beast stuff. And Newt's like, yeah, I know me too. It's, it's very much this. It, I, I the, the other video I have to cite for your listeners, if they haven't seen it, it's, it's, it's by the YouTuber just right. It was originally called how JK Rowling writes a mystery and how JK Rowling writes mystery revisited, but he retitled it how a turf writes mystery. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but he, he first looks at the Harry Potter series and how Rowling's mystery plays out and how it translates to film. And then he looks at Beasts. He mentions four things from Rowling's style. Selective vague language, 
muted culprits, buried clues, and signature descriptions. You can't do selectively vague language and signature descriptions in film the way that Rowling does it. What's a signature description? Obviously, I know what it is, but for the listener at home that might not know. Signature descriptions are like how she essentially like describes how she sets a description of a character, like what she wants you to picture in your mind, like what details she she plants there so that they can maybe become important later. And selectively vague language is like my favorite example is in Prisoner of Azkaban when Lupin sees his when the class sees Lupin's bogart and she's like, it was an orb. And a glowing orb. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, narrator. <laughs> that that was the thing that upset me the most about that plot twist is like, <laughs> I would not describe the moon as a glowing orb. I would, like, there's many different ways to say it. So that that really upset me. You would say, oh, that's the moon. And in the film, Quadron, because he couldn't do it any other way, was like, yeah, it's the moon. <laughs> the, the, only, the only other explanation is that Harry's never seen the moon before, so narrator Harry's like, it was a silvery <laughs> yeah, it's, and But she can get away with that in her writing, and you can consider, especially as a teen or tween reader, you can consider that fair play. Throwing out, Dumbledore sure is interested in you, in the middle of this scene, in the books, would be like, ooh, that's a fun little nugget. And then you'd be like, I'll hold on to that. You watch the movie and you're just like, why was that here in this moment? Like, what what did this have to do with anything in this moment? It just stops the action that's going on with the rest of that scene, has nothing to do with it, and then redirects back to the conversation. And it's just, it it's out there like a sore thumb, just like neon lights, like, this is important and I will get back to this later. So it just doesn't work the same way. Okay, yeah, no, it's valid. It's valid. I guess it's another one of those like book J.K. Rowling to movie J.K. Rowling writing style, not translating. So they go to the execution room and Tina turns to the executioner and says, don't do this, Bernadette, please. And then Bernadette, in a not very assuring way, says, oh, it don't hurt, which you're still murdering me, Bernadette. Like, I wasn't worried about the pain. I was worried about the death part. So they take out your good memories and put them into this big pool to lure you into the death chair. And then your memories become bad or at least plot relevant. (laughs) And then the the goop comes up from the pool and then uh, assumingly it's going to kill you. It's very strange. Of course, they don't say what this is. This like very bad version of the pensive, like completely unmentioned. Very strange. Seems like a weird way of going about executing people. It's like if the pensive and the death chamber from the Ministry of Magic got married, (laughs) like this is their weird love child. But it's and it's clearly done I, I read somewhere online, I can't cite my source for this one, but I did read somewhere, I think it might have been the Harry Potter wiki, but um, that that room was based actually on an, on an art installation. And I think that's the thing, that's the problem, is that Yates is going for visual flair over world-building logic. So for the fans and the Potter literate, they are watching this film being like, ooh, what's that? Can we get like an in-depth explanation on that? And Yates is coming from the perspective of, no, it's pretty. Yeah, wasn't that pretty? Didn't you like it? (laughs) Wasn't that pretty? Don't you like that? (laughs) (laughs) Apologies. I've never been to Kentucky, so (laughs) I'm not saying anything mean about the state of Kentucky or people from there's intelligence. Purely the joke was just 
Wouldn't it be funny if we pretended David Yates had a southern accent? What's the state with southern accents? Kentucky. I promise the joke ends there. (laughs) So Queenie reads Tina's mind and dramatically drops a tray full of coffee mugs. In front of a bunch of, like, people we don't care about. Yep. mm -hmm. But I think her boss is there and that's it. (laughs) Like, the one person we might know. Isn't this, like, one of the first moments, too, where we really see that Queenie is, like, in a secretarial role at the ministry? Like, we don't even know what she did. This is the first time we see that she a has a job b has a job at the ministry and then c is wearing the same clothes from last night yeah (laughs) (laughs) seems like important details that may have and this is the problem with the amount of characters that are in this movie we don't have time we just don't have the time to establish all of these things about them or rolling has wasted time on things that didn't matter and we could have maybe had like you see that that weird establishing shot to give us a sense of where Queenie is with with the the that whole roundtable of ministry staff playing cards, and you get the feeling once again with the weird editing that there may have been a scene somewhere in the film about Queenie's job and what she does, and that would have been great to establish who she is more as a character and her relationship with Tina and the ministry. But why bother then to have that shot of the reaction? Like you don't need it in that moment. You can just assume that her dropping a tray will probably be shocking to anybody who is around her, but they are not important in that moment. Queenie's internal realization is important, so you don't need to take the camera off her. It's just a useless shot. Yeah, it's also strange that Queenie, someone who can read people's minds, her job is just hey, go get me a coffee. It feels like she could use her magical abilities to something more productive. I don't know. It's very strange. Well, and as we'll see in the upcoming scenes, they kind of establish that Queenie's occlumency powers are not something that people, her coworkers seem to know about. Keeping occlumency, like inherently born occlumency powers private is almost the same thing as being amazed by a woman who can turn into a snake in the magical world. It's like... (laughs) Why are you why are you keeping this a secret? This is like this is just a daily thing for us. <laughs> so Queenie's gonna break Tina at a death row, and then we cut back to Tina in the death chair. She has a memory of Credence, which feels like a very heavy-handed way for us to learn some backstory, very plot-relevant memory. And then Newt uses the yo-yo Pokemon bird to help break them out. The one that he threw as a joke in Jacob's face now comes back and is actually useful in escaping them. We learn it's called the swooping evil. So we have alternating scenes of Newt and Tina getting out of the death chair thing but then also Queenie and Jacob trying to break into an office like you talked about earlier trying to use the spells uses Aberto which I was like isn't that just the Spanish word for open Uh, and then I don't know if I missed this and I was taking notes does she just end up kicking the door down is that how they open it they just kick it open yeah Jacob kicks the door down and it's it's done so and just like you were talking about with how the film just cuts between plots so quickly that particular edit is done so quick that basically Jacob is halfway through kicking the door when it cuts back. Okay, that's what I thought. I was like, did I miss something? And it's so quick. And on top of that, to follow up that shot, it doesn't show Queenie fully walk into the room. It does a jump cut to her already at the desk, taking the suitcase and the wands off the desk. And so that scene is just chaos. It's like, and again, with... The trademark flair of Yates, where nothing's in the center of the frame, so your eye is trying to travel and focus on what he wants you to see, but you can't because his edits are too quick. And like in between that, we have this high-octane action scene 
of Newt trying to rescue Tina and the swooping evil, which apparently is like a phoenix and can carry heavy loads for a hot second. Like <laughs> that, and that's the other. I'm sure y'all talked about this probably in the last section, but that's the other problem with the beasts in this movie, and we will see that coming up too. I called it in my notes uh, Deus Ex Bestia because <laughs> they are not. Yeah, they're very convenient. The funny thing is, they're not. Even the beasts that are from the book are not doing the things that they are said to do in the book. Correct. She gives them all plot specific powers. The Swooping Evil even has an establishing scene. Like, I, I, I still can criticize it though, because nowhere in that scene is new. Like, oh, and they're also great at rescuing you in a pinch like except they won't stay still for you to jump on them they have to keep moving they can't stay stationary to be a step you have to time it they're like a moving platform in a crash bandicoot game yes this is like the first harry potter game where you have to jump onto levels in through hogwarts to learn a spell this is that (laughs) Uh, so they escape they meet up with queenie and jacob queenie puts all three of them in the suitcase and then she lies to her boss to leave and you get a weird power dynamic thing with the boss where like I guess the boss has a crush on her so he just believes the obvious lies I don't know very strange well and this is something that's like retcon established I don't know if it was Rowling or Yates somebody said that so this is Abernathy and Abernathy oh right yeah they say his name yeah he's important in the second one I've forgotten everything about the second so I don't remember (laughs) he he's literally Grindelwald's right hand man in the sequel that's a weird twist from like incompetent boss to evil person yes and there there was a claim retroactively that he at this point is already working for Grave slash Grindelwald. Like, he is already under his thumb. That doesn't make any sense. No. This does nothing to set him up for his role in the sequel, especially because he has, I believe, zero interactions with Queenie in the sequel anyway. Also, huge... LOL at Wizards using that they're sick to go home from work. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's been established in Harry Potter. No one can ever get sick. No. No one can have any sort of disability at all. Physical, (laughs) mental, nothing. Then no one ever gets a regular, like, I don't know. And not only does she say I'm sick and it's this funny, like, thing, he goes again in a way that assumes she's Ferris Bueller and she's missed work nine Mm. times because of pretending to be sick. (laughs) Well, which again... Goes back to what we said about Queenie earlier. We don't have an, a solid establishment of who she was at work. And so these things don't come out as, oh, like Queenie got away with this because we knew that this is how she's like at work. We get that introduction of who she is. The, the, and this is another, this is a problem we're going to be seeing big time coming up. Setup payoff in this movie is terrible. And this is one of those minor examples of that. The setup and payoff is immediate. It is not foreshadowed in any way whatsoever. And it is not like it it just doesn't tell us any more worthwhile information about Queenie. Right. The other thing I was doing while I was watching this movie, I don't know what time of day it is, but when he questioned her leaving, I was just screaming at the TV, say you're going to lunch. <laughs> like, 
It's not, oh, I'm, I'm going to grab a bite to eat. Like, there's so many better excuses than I'm sick, fake cough, fake cough. Maybe it was trying to be funnier. It's not funny, but no. there are so many better excuses to use. It was infuriating because it's a two-part thing. All of these questions we have raised about wizards don't get sick, but then also, even if you were sick, wouldn't there just be like a doctor's office in the ministry where it's like, here, take this potion because you're a wizard. So if you have the flu, it can just be like, here, take flu, be gone. Uh, like, it doesn't seem that hard. I mean, they have executioners at the at Makuza, so they certainly have some kind of like nurse station where you can go get some pepper potion and calm down. That was, that was another <laughs> wild thing is that I get maybe Makusa works differently, blah, blah, blah. But like, imagine if... I do. I don't think they have an execution chamber in the basement of the White House, do they? <laughs> it feels that's ridiculous. Like, oh yeah, here's here's the bunker. Here's the secret card room where Leo McGarry and Vice President Hoynes have their AA meetings. Here's the electric <laughs> chair. Like, it is wild that that's just in Macusa. They're like, oh yeah, just take the elevator to basement four and murder these people. Yeah. And then people like Graves have the power to just be like, do it immediately. Don't get anybody else's approval. Yeah, I'll take mm-hmm. care of the paperwork. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, gosh, ridiculous. Huh. But I think on this ridiculous note about this ridiculous movie, I think is a perfect place to stop this first episode of the second half. We'll have one more episode to close it out. But Michael, thank you so much for joining. If people want to find you doing stuff, I know you're a retired podcaster, but is there anything in particular you would like to plug for the listeners? Oh, yeah. The only thing I've got is if you want to follow... A a fellow Potter fan who has been in the deep end of this and is kind of just like essentially feeling like they've woken up out of the Matrix after (laughs) 20 years. I'm always about like having people join me on this journey and talking with fellow Potter fans about how we get through this. Uh, so if you if you want, please follow me on on Twitter at Lupin Patronus. Y'all know how to spell that; it's all one word. <laughs> I've been tweeting just like recently. I tweeted about how I kind of essentially like con married my Harry Potter collection, which is something I never thought I would have to do. It's really incredible to read others' reactions and experiences with that for me as well. So uh, yeah, please join me over on Twitter. I'd love to chat with you over there about Harry Potter and anything else you want to talk about. Definitely. I can vouch for your Twitter. In these strange times when Harry Potter news comes out, I definitely always look to your Twitter. Like when they announce the game and the TV show and stuff, you are a good resource of like, how does Michael feel about this? Because that probably (laughs) emulates how I should feel about this. Like it's a good, it's a good reference point of like, what's Michael saying about this? Okay, cool. He agrees with me that I feel iffy about buying this video game and maybe I shouldn't do it. Well, thank you. I'm so honored to to be considered a standard of what Potter fans should do, but I'm always looking for that standard from other... I'm I'm just as much doing the same thing with all of y'all out there. So, And thank you too, of course, Mike, for, for thinking of me for this discussion and inviting me. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, it was perfect. I knew you'd be a great person to have from knowing a lot about it to also being critical of it to how we should feel about it because I, I feel weird about making these episodes mm-hmm. in general. So to have you as a guest, I knew it was a perfect fit. So thank you for joining. And as they say in the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, before they send people off to the murder room in the basement, <laughs> wizard on! It would be amazing if Bernadette was just like, wizard on! <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, if you do really need to get that special someone a special gift for Valentine's Day, which is coming up, and you don't have something, you could get something instantaneously at PotterlessPodcast.com slash merch. We've got digital merchandise that you can download on the spot, so you don't have to worry about shipping, and you can give it to them right away, and you don't have to worry about shipping time. Or if you're not too worried about shipping times, and you want to get some physical merch, we've got a whole bunch of physical merch as well, from pins to stickers to hoodies and more. All of that lives at PotterlessPodcast.com slash merch. Potterless was created by Mike Schubert. It is hosted by Mike Schubert. It is edited by Mike Schubert. It is produced by Mike Schubert as well as Vicky Garcia, Christine, Aaron Johnson, Klaus Rilopu, Marchismo, Juan Sanfilio, Rosemarie, Daj, Maria, Lisa C. Keen, Audra, Eleanor Curlin, Nikita Power, Rachel Guthrie, Zachary Polito, Alex Consolver, John Cocker, Noel Basile, Claire Spencer, Rory Collier, Veronica Bartova, Lada Bartova, Noah, Tracy Toya, Colleen, Jennifer Marklu, Justin Montero, Jacob Parrish, Maya Gray, Mark Body, Polly Burge, Zena Rosnowski, Harlan Haskins, Novelia, Nikki Harris, Kine, Amanda Alfred, Kafir Shaltiel, Sarah Shedder, Marta Morrison, Maya Flor Sake, Georgia Davis, Skylar Lilly, Adele Ryan, Professor Threat, Ellie Hoskovchova, Michael David. Jordi, Kelly Otilio, Kerry Crumpler, Connie Binkowski, Jen Went, Nedry OS, Will Huser, Marco Cepeda, Marie Rieger, Ashton Gabrielson, Brittany Gutierrez, Phelan, The Meadows Family, Ginny from the Block, Heather Langeal, Kevin Stewart, Jarls Fiven, Peter McGrath, Jan and Rose Dab, Callahan and Darius, Leah Reed, Bella Barlack, Melanie Demi, Becca Spry, Reese Dignan, Adam Graham, Joseph Torp, Madison, Don't Call Me Nymphadora, Sabrina Balsiger, Sophia Loves Pigs, Farzan Jarabat, Melanie DeGrave, Matt Barger, Okamahime, Boney Pony, Kelsey Gillespie, Rike Mangor Jensen, Taylor Payne, Megan Moon, Riley Kitas, Laurel Happy, Erica Butler, Miranda, Kendra Hertz, Natanya Page, Yogan Shanley, Darcy Alexandra Harrison, Sandra Rose, Craig McRoberts, Lior Nachum, Demi Lynn, Michelle Spurgeon, Henrika Wolf, Casey Canales, Megan Stempen, Zat, Jack Gitzes, Sophia Leone, Dane Nemcher, Robin Garcia, Chick Parr, Mermaid and her Daddykins, Gregory Hughes, Call Call, Mother Feathers, Nina Jazalik, Ribbon Monstrosity, Brittany Harper, Gavin Miller, Jack Parr, Serenity Allen, Emily Quinlan, Haley Hastings, Sabrina Casanova, Jenny Browers, Laura, Hila, Eileen Gazesh, Annette Pipitone, Kirsten R. Cunningham, Hufflepuff Alumni, Brett Clausen, Mary Price, Artemis, Trans People or People, Samantha McNamara, Nina Campley, Tatiana Schmitova, Taylor Roberts, Karis Davies, Little Vom- Spiders running around, Tony Joe McHufflepuff, Punkfish, Wire Warrior 4976, Catherine Carolchak, Joe Sander, Hunter Fincham, Steamed Nuggets, and Can't I Potter? Web design by Kelly Schubert, and the music is by Bettina Campamanis. If you want to find us on social media, you can at Facebook.com slash Potterless, Twitter.com slash Potterless Pod, Instagram.com slash Potterless Podcast, and Reddit.com slash R slash Potterless. For any and all information about the show, you can go to PotterlessPodcast.com. For bonus content, you can go to Patreon.com slash Potterless, and for merch, you can go to PotterlessPodcast.com slash merch. If you want to tell someone about the show, you think of someone who would like it, reach out to them directly or post about it on social media or leave a rating interview. All of those things help. Thanks again so much for listening. And until next time, as they say in the wizarding world of Harry Potter, wizard on. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.